Welcome back to my love letter time machine. Hi, I'm Ingrid Burchill Hughes, and I'm serialising the love letters of my great-great-grandparents, Fred Shepard and Janie Warburton. Travel 140 years back in time with me now, when we take a look at Victorian history through their eyes. And today I have a bonus episode for you about James Warburton, Janie's dad, my three times great-grandfather, and his single-wicket cricket match of 1843. Hello again. I thought you might like this mini bonus episode of the podcast. For ages, I've been hanging on to this little detail about Janie's dad, James Warburton, and wondering how on earth I could fit it into the main series. But given the events took place nearly 175 years ago, you can perhaps see why I struggled. Anyway, while we wait for the main series to return in September, I thought I'd just give it its own little moment. When I first started the My Love Letter Time Machine podcast, I cast a bit of a wide net, so to speak, in the British newspaper archive, and searched for every single name, of Janie and Fred's family and friends, just to see what came up. Janie's dad pops up a lot as a constable, taking the rents for the Norfolk estate. But the earliest clip I found was in the Sheffield Independent for the 4th of November, 1843. Under the column titled Sporting Intelligence and sandwiched between Lord Waterford's racehorse purchases, and the results of a mule and pony race wager, this was the one single sentence. It says, A cricket match at single wicket was played on Monday week between Mr James Warburton of Hansworth and Mr John Owen Staniforth of Woodhouse, which was won by the former by four runs. As I said, that was nearly 175 years ago, and working the days back must have been on Monday the 30th of October. Now, James's opponent, John Staniforth, was the husband of Mary, who we've got to know over time as Janie's aunt Staniforth. When I started researching this story, I had assumed that this must have been a match between brothers-in-law, and possibly even rival public houses, given that John and Aunt Staniforth were at the time the landlord and landlady of the Cross Daggers in Woodhouse. But the more I looked into it, I realised that this was before James and John had actually become brothers-in-law, and even before James had taken on the Cross Keys. James was born on the April of 1814 or 1815, and I'm suddenly marvelling that I have a little glimpse into the world of members of my family stretching back more than 200 years now. Anyway, he was born in Grenaside, at the time a village to the north of Sheffield, and by the time he was 26, according to the 1841 census, James had somehow come to be living in Hansworth and was working as a joiner. He may not then have yet met his wife-to-be, Maria, who in that same census was only 15 and still living with her parents, John Carnell and Jane Staniforth, in Baton. Hansworth, Woodhouse 
and Baton form a little chain of villages very close to each other to the southeast of Sheffield. At the time, Baton was very much a farming community that stood on the edge of what had once been the ancient great forests that stretched from Derbyshire to West Yorkshire, through Lincolnshire and down into Nottinghamshire. The only significant remainder of it now is Sherwood Forest, of Robin Hood fame. This particular cricket match took place two years before Maria and James got married and could well be a candidate for the occasion of their meeting. Obviously, that is entirely speculation on my part. Going back to Aunt Staniforth's husband, John, you might remember that the pair featured a little bit in the episode with the carriage crash. I mentioned that the family seemed to have had a tradition for a bride and groom to go on a carriage drive with their friends after the wedding for a bit of knees up, which is what John and Mary did back in 1833. Eleven years before, when John was only 17, the first proper cricket ground in Yorkshire was laid out in Darnall, barely three miles from Woodhouse. The Darnall Cricket Ground was home to the Sheffield Cricket Club, the forerunners of the now world-renowned Yorkshire County Cricket Club. The matches played there drew huge numbers of spectators. Matches would usually open on a Monday, a day traditionally observed in August by the Sheffield Cutlers as a weekly holiday. Before he became a maltster, John was apprenticed as a sicklesmith and no doubt he and the rest of the apprentices would have been naturally drawn to the cricket grounds to watch the matches. The matches held at Darnall were a big deal. Actually, to go off on a bit of a tangent, it's very possible that John may have witnessed or even been hurt in the famous disaster of Darnall Cricket Ground in the last week of August 1822. A three-day match between Sheffield and Nottingham who were the favourites, had been planned and had caused major anticipation. The Sheffield and Rotherham Independent reported, Sheffield seemed almost to pour out the principal part of its population, the roads being literally covered all the morning, with crowds hastening to the scene of the expected enjoyments. It was at four o'clock, after the match was well underway, when one of the temporary stands failed and crashed to the ground. It was a 40-yard structure with nine tiers bearing 2,000 people, all of whom were brought down with it. Shrieks, screams and groans rent the air on all sides and the scene of confusion which ensued was indescribably affecting, wrote the Sheffield Independent. Every hand was instantly engaged in extricating the sufferers. Every possible accommodation offer and every vehicle put in requisition to convey them away to their respective homes. By some miracle, only 23 of the 2,000 needed medical treatment at the Sheffield Infirmary. The ground was improved two years later and considered as the finest in England and the temporary structure was replaced with a permanent grandstand to reduce the risk of another accident. The crowds came to top 60,000 spectators for major matches. It would be hard to imagine 
any sporty young man living in the immediate area, not becoming a little cricket mad, giving the prestige and the fame of the matches being played on their doorstep. And the possibility that John and James bonded because of it seems perfectly plausible to me. The newspaper clipping that they featured in mentions that the cricket match they played was a single wicket. So what exactly was single wicket cricket? In his highly acclaimed book, More Than a Game, The Story of Cricket's Early Years, John Major, yes, the former Prime Minister John Major, has this to say about single wicket games. In the early decades of the 19th century, as cricket moved towards the game we know today, an earlier form, with erratic rules carved out of conventional, continued to flourish, albeit intermittently. Single wicket cricket long predated the first known 11-a-side match. The rules of early single wicket cricket the term was taken to cover games of up to five players a side, were probably agreed on a match-by-match basis, but by the 19th century, a settled format had evolved. If the ball passed behind the wicket, it was considered dead. Batsmen were expected to play the bowling with one foot anchored with the crease, no striding forward to dive at the ball, and to score a single run, they had to touch the bowling stump and return to their wicket. A lost ball entitled the batsman to three runs, a poor return for what must have been an extravagant hit, and if a fielder stopped the ball with his hat, a similar score was awarded. The nature of the rules and the physical strain on the solitary bowler, which was eased by allowing him up to a minute between each ball, ensured that single wicket cricket was a slow game. The rate of progress may have been pedestrian, but the element of one-to-one combat, so redolent of boxing, jousting or duelling, appealed to the British instinct. Contests between leading players attracted large crowds. I was surprised to read that players didn't use leg guards back then. In fact, the greatest single-wicket player of the time, Alfred Min, was hit so hard by a ball being repeatedly bowled to just below his knee during a match that he was hospitalised and narrowly avoided having his leg amputated. Major goes on to explain that many single-wicket games attracted gambling, and there's a part of me here wondering if James and John's match wasn't just a friendly, but if there was some kind of wager going on. So if you'll indulge me, I'm going to paint a picture of my proposed version of events. Like many of the men in the area, James and John were part of the local cricket scene and had more than likely become friends through it. For whatever reason, they decided to put together a special match in Woodhouse. If it was a head-to-head, Perhaps they were trying to win a bet with each other, and if it was a small teams match, perhaps it was more of a local community event. At the time, Maria, Janie's mother, would have been 17 or 18, and given the nature of the family sharing labour, I'm willing to bet that she was working in the cross daggers for her sister and brother-in-law. It would have been the perfect opportunity to sell beer. As often happened in these sorts of events, they would have set up a table outside, and as barmaid, 
Maria would have watched the match as she served the spectators. Given James's triumph, I imagine she would have been very impressed. They may have already been courting by this point, but perhaps this is when they started. It also gives a clue as to how James found a path from being a joiner to becoming a maltster and publican. He still recorded as a joiner on their marriage certificate of 1845, but this changed to maltster by the 1851 census. John Staniforth, now not just a friend, but his brother-in-law, must have employed James and trained him for James to be able to strike out on his own. Their first child, William, arrived in 1847. Emma followed in 1852, then John in 1855, and Frederick in 1856. And finally, my great-grandmother, Janie, in 1860. And I'm rather amused to imagine that it all started because of a cricket match. I hope you enjoyed this mini episode. I certainly did finding all this out. And I hope to pop back now and again during the summer before the series comes back in September. Thank you so much for listening to my Love Letter Time Machine. I'm still posting bits and pieces and reels on Instagram at my Love Letter Time Machine or one word. And you are very welcome to write to me at my Love Letter Time Machine at gmail.com. Until next time, take care. <laughs>